Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, good morning again, everyone. It is so good to be with you. This is officially my first time preaching to people in the room. And this is really exciting for me. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the interim co-lead pastors here. And welcome to you joining us online. We're so glad you're also tuning in with us. Uh, As you just saw, we're in a series considering what justice is. That's a very hot topic right now in our culture. And uh, today, we are going to be talking about what justice has to do with reconciliation. That's a big word, isn't it? Reconciliation. I mean, we're seeing nowadays... uh, on, on the global stage, how you know, the US and Canada even, and even the church are reckoning with a lot of the skeletons in their closet. There's been wrongs done in the past. There's a legacy of slavery and racism. There's been, in our country, the unjust uh, seizure of, of indigenous lands and attempted elimination of indigenous culture. And, and the question I think everyone's asking is, how do we move on from here? Like, how do we make this right so that we can have peace? And I just want you to know, it's not lost on me that this is a huge and nuanced subject. I'm not standing here as the person who's like going to pave the way for reconciliation in Canada. But what I do want to do is open God's word. I want to open God's word because uh, as the conversation rages, it's really important that we know what God thinks about the matter of reconciliation and peace and unity and how we can move on from the wrongs that that have been done to people in our society. So please do have a Bible open. You can have uh, a hard copy or a phone open. No one's gonna judge you, think you're texting. Um, All in good faith here. And we're gonna get into Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 to 12. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 893. So let's read that together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And let's give ear, because this is God's word. It says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, 
The whole body is, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Come Holy Spirit. And enable these words which you inspired Paul, the apostle, to write. Now illumine them in our hearts and in our minds for the sake that we would be transformed into your image, that we would be empowered to live for you in this moment. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. My son Jude is three years old. And the jury's still out on whether the terrible twos or the thrashing threes are worse. Um, but Jude is learning to talk, and it's really cute. And one of his favorite phrases these days is to say, that's okay. And imagine a three-year-old saying that. It's not cute when I say it, it's cute when he says it. He says, that's okay. Now, as is often the case when we're learning to speak, sometimes we say the wrong thing at the wrong moment because we don't really know what we're saying. And so he'll like punch his brother in the face or he'll throw spaghetti on the wall and he'll say, that's okay. And, you know, as parents, we just pause, deep breath, collect ourselves. No, Jude, it is not okay. You may not throw spaghetti on my walls. Now, on a more serious level, have you ever been wronged by someone and their response to you seemed to be to say, that's okay. Like, come on, just get over it. And it was clear to you that they didn't actually want to make it right. They just kind of wanted you to suck up the wrong that they had done and get on with it. Have you ever felt that? And like every human on the planet knows, it's not just okay, right? Like when someone hurts someone else, what actually happens in the relationship is that a wedge is driven between those two parties. And it's not gonna be okay until it's made okay. It's not gonna be okay until the wrong is made right. You see, that's what we're talking about with the word reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't just saying, we're sorry, now let's move on. It's saying, we're sorry, how can we make it right? And then being willing to do it, being willing to make it right. Reconciliation is a key word in our passage today, and, and very simply, we're going to consider the what of reconciliation. What is it? We're going to consider the how, how does it happen, and then we're going to look at the mission of the reconciled. So, Paul, who wrote this letter, is actually speaking to two different groups. In the text, if you were listening, you probably heard them. We even talked about them last week. There's two main groups in the church. First, there were Jewish believers, and second, there were Gentile believers. Now, uh, as many of us know the, the Christian story, Jesus himself, Jesus was not a Christian. Everybody, did, is that news for anyone? He was not a Christian. What was Jesus? He was Jewish. He was a Jewish man, and he came, and he was the Jewish Messiah to fulfill the Jewish messianic hope and to fulfill the Jewish scriptures. Now, as his good news about his death and resurrection and him being God's king spread, from Judea and Jerusalem, which was kind of the Jewish homeland, it spread into the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, non-Jews came to believe in Jesus. And the word Gentile that we heard in our text today comes from the Greek word ethne. You'll hear our English word ethnic. 
It simply means the nations. It means anyone who is not ethnically Jewish. And so now the nations are coming to believe in Messiah Jesus. And and one of the big questions that arose in the early church was, what does it mean for the Gentiles now to be included in God's people? Do Gentiles need to take on the identity markers that Jews shared now that they believe in the Jewish Messiah? So today you look around in culture and, you know, you can recognize a punk because they have a mohawk and they probably wear a chain and they're wearing Vans shoes, most likely. You can recognize a downtown business person, they're driving a fast car, nice suit, nice haircut. These were identity markers. Well, Jews had this too. These identity markers, and and it was the whole of Torah, but the main ones were circumcision and uh, food laws and Sabbath. And so there was a divide in the early church. A lot of the Jewish believers really felt like the Gentiles should now start to have their identity markers. New Testament scholar and preacher John Stott helps us appreciate the situation. This is what he says. He says, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Then he says, it's not that the Old Testament sanctioned this divide, It affirmed that God had a purpose for the nations, for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the world. But tragically, the case was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. You understand? It was a doctrine of election that he chose the Jews, but they twisted it into one of favoritism, and they became filled with racial pride and hatred, even despising Gentiles as dogs. Yikes. So as we wade into you know, the cultural landscape today, it, it's important to know that um, racial pride is not something that the church is immune to. It's not like, oh, we're part of the church and this isn't an issue for us. No, this was part of uh, one of our struggles since the beginning. And so I actually want to talk about racism and racial pride for a bit. You probably came to church thinking, you know, uh, we're going to talk about something nice and fluffy this morning, but no, we're getting right into it. Uh, so I invite you to come with me. If you do a quick search on Google, it'll tell you that racism is discrimination or prejudice against anyone or someone on the basis of their racial or ethnic group, okay? So it's hostility because of a person's ethnic background. Now, in the opening chapters of the Bible, as we've seen in our series, we learn that all humans were made in the image of God and that all humans have been invested with equal value and dignity. And the Bible actually traces all of human ancestry back to two people. Let's go back to uh, Sunday school. Well, who are those two people? Bill Cardi, Adam and Eve. Bill's taught many of you Sunday school. Adam and Eve, right. And so what the Bible is telling us is, is that at bottom, While there is diversity at bottom, how many races are there? At bottom, there is one human race. One human race. Paul puts it this way. In Acts chapter 17, he says, from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And so what racism, in a sense, does is it adds division where there isn't division. Okay? Let me explain that further. But first, I just want to mention that modern science actually backs what the Bible says. 
In recent research into human genetics, it shows that people from all around the world, regardless of your ancestry, you share 99.9% of your DNA. 99.9% of your DNA. Biologically, there's very little different about us, whereas in the past, science was often leveraged to assert that there is a difference and to fuel racism. Now, I am not saying this, that that bottom there is one human race in order to deny diversity and difference. You see, it's sometimes the case that uh, people from the majority culture, or if you've been on the side of the uh, oppressor, that you want to leverage you know, our commonality in order to deny the presence of racism. That's not at all what's going on here. No, racism is real. It's a real thing. And it's not real because certain cultures or ancestries are superior or inferior to others. It's real because there's sin in our hearts. There's sin in our hearts. And what the scriptures actually call us into is neither assimilation on one hand, where we ignore our difference, nor discrimination on the other, where we we make our difference into the basis of judgment and oppression. The Bible calls us into unity and diversity. It calls us to love across difference. Okay? Now, I want us to just consider this further. Because for most of us, like, let's face it, no one in culture today is, like, openly racist. Or very few people are. Um, For most of us, racial pride is very subtle. And here's how it plays out with us. As I've been thinking about this, I think at its heart, what racism is, is the, uh, is the sin of pride making our difference into an idol. That racism is the sin of pride making our difference into an idol. Now, let me explain that. It takes some trait of like your own group and says, ah, this is what it means to be human. You know, or this trait is more desirable than that trait and it attaches ultimate significance to it and it becomes something by which you, you know, um, impose an identity on others and your own identity in order to get distinction, right? In order to, whoop, I'm up here, you're down here. It's the sin of pride in our hearts. And so it's subtle for us. And here's one example. Whenever we think, like as we, as we see what's going on in the world, whenever the thought occurs to us on the level of our you know, thoughts, if it were me in their shoes, I'd totally be able to break out of that. You know, if I was in their place, there's no way I would come to such poverty or I'd be able to break the cycle of poverty or I would never let that happen to me and my family, right? Like on some level, if we're thinking that way, pride is stroking our ego, right? and making us say, I'm better than, than them. So to sum it up, the movement or the path of racial pride uh, takes diversity, the beautiful diversity of the human race, and then twists it into, di- into uh, distinction. And then it breeds discrimination. That's the movement of uh, racial pride. Notice in our text, it starts with the diversity. You've got Jews, and you've got Gentiles, but then there's distinction and division. The uncircumcised and the circumcised, what a lot of uh, Jewish believers did in the early church, actually, is they, they started calling themselves the circumcision, as if it was like a badge, right, to distinguish themselves from the Gentiles. And then you have what Paul calls 
the dividing wall of hostility. Did you notice that? Wow, there's like a wall here between you guys. What you've done is you've taken your diversity and you've, it's, you've bred distinction and now there's a wall. You're separating yourself from others. This led to discrimination in the early church. I want us to continue, uh, consider the example of Peter. Everybody, uh, you'll probably have heard the name Peter. Peter was a pillar in the early church, one of the most significant leaders uh, in the church. And in Acts chapter 10, there's this awesome story where Peter is praying on the roof, he's feeling a bit hungry, and Jesus gives him a really powerful vision. Because Jesus is preparing Peter, a Jewish man, to go into the home of a Roman centurion. <gasps> you did not do this as a Jewish person. You did not go into a Gentile home. And especially not the home of like the army commander of the empire that had you under their foot. And so Jesus actually had to do deep work in Peter. And he gives us, him this powerful vision. And in this vision, Peter sees a, a tablecloth almost coming out of heaven and he sees all kinds of animals on it. There's probably pigs and there's probably bacon sizzling on a grill. And, and Peter says this, Oh no, sorry, the, vo the voice in the vision says this. He sees all this food and the voice says, get up, P Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter says this, surely not I, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, right? Badge, I'm a Jewish man, I have food laws. This is not what I do. I do not do that. But then the voice spoke to him a second time and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And so Peter goes to the Roman centurion's house and he preaches the gospel. They believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on them and he's like, oh, okay, you are right, God. They too can join your household. It's amazing. But the problem is, is that later, Peter started to discriminate again. And as time went on, some Jewish believers came from Jerusalem to where Peter was. And then all of a sudden, Peter would no longer eat with Gentiles. And Paul calls him out on this in Galatians 2. Right? If, if Peter struggled with racial pride, folks, I, the chances are we, we might too, right? Peter the Great, he struggled with it. We can too. That's okay. God knows. But what the gospel wants to do is actually call us out of that feedback loop of diversity to distinction to discrimination and to approach diversity, channel it into reconciliation. Channel it into understanding people who are different from us. Learning to love across difference. Learning to love your enemy and your neighbor. And then it results in peace and unity. That's what reconciliation is. That's what restorative justice is all about. Okay, so that's what reconciliation is. Now let's look at the how. How does reconciliation happen? Because as I'm talking here, you might be thinking, okay, pastor, preacher, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And Paul's point is that reconciliation is not first something we do, but something that God has done. It is first something that God has done. There is a, a foundational reconciliation that makes all other reconciliation possible. Check out verse 12 in our text. It says, remember that formerly you Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners of the covenant of promise. And then it gives this like statement of the human condition. We were without hope and without God in the world, right? We, the, the, the wedge of sin had been driven between us. We were separated from God. We had no hope. 
That's the bad news. But then there's such good news. Look at verse 13. But now. And like that but now is awesome. When you hear the word but now, like listen up because good news is coming. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were outsiders, now you're insiders. By the blood of Christ, God has done something. He has intervened in order to reconcile. And he talks about the blood of Christ. What's that about? What's, what's that about? There's three things I wanna talk about with regards to the blood and what the blood of Jesus does. First, the blood of Christ brings everyone into the same peace. Look at verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. We get on, on the same peace. And the way the blood of Christ does this is it covers the cost of our sin, right? Just like we, we have already gone over, it's not just okay, right? Um, and God is a God of justice. And so God couldn't just look at our, our sin, look at all the wrong we've done and say, oh guys, that's okay. You know, silly you, come on. We'll get through this. No, he carries out justice. And the beauty of the gospel is that God didn't turn to us and take us by the collar and say, you've messed up my world, now you make it right. You know, you sinned against me, you've, you've trashed my earth, you've killed my children, now you make it right. I mean, how could we ever possibly do that? But the gospel is that God saw us doing that and he said, I'm gonna make it right. He said, I'm gonna give my son, I'm gonna pay the price. I'm gonna cover the cost of all the wrong you've done. I'm gonna make peace. That is such grace, isn't it? That he gave Jesus and shed his blood for us. The blood of Jesus makes peace by covering the cost of our sin. Second, the blood of Jesus gives us the same access to God the Father for, for anyone, regardless of your ancestry. Verse 18, it says, for through him, we both, and that both is talking about the two different groups, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We were once caught off, now we have access. Jesus' blood gives us access. And lastly, Jesus' blood gives us the same identity. The same identity. Look at verse 19. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Aliens, he's not talking about extraterrestrials, he's talking about foreigners, right? You're, you're no longer this, but you are now this. He says, you are now fellow citizens. Wow. Fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That's the badge, right? That's the badge that we get to wear, the identity badge. It's no longer circumcision, Sabbath, or food laws. It's no longer our national identity. It's no longer social progressivism. It's no longer social conservatism. It's not your fashion. It's not the keto diet. It's not the car you drive or the company you work for. Your primary identity is in Christ. And your allegiance is to him first. And let me just say, we get into deep trouble whenever we do not allow our identity in Christ to be the first thing. Now, look at verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace. Not just he brought us peace, but he is our peace. Talking about Jesus, who has made the two groups one. Isn't that such good news? 
that as we think about reconciliation today, there is a foundational reconciliation that has happened with our relationship to God. And it's only once we grasp that that we can then begin to talk about what real reconciliation could look like in the world. Now, John Perkins, some of you might know the name, some of you might not, is a man who has given his life to reconciliation. He's a follower of Jesus. He's about 91 years old and lives in the South. He's been beaten. He's been arrested for his convictions. And he's observed that the the reason, one of the reasons that America and Canada still have a problem of racism is this. He says, sorry, he says that people apart from God are trying to create unity. So people apart from God are trying to create unity while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we already possess. And what Perkins highlights is so important for us as we think practically about this. So he looks at the world and he says, world, you're trying to have reconciliation without the reconciler. You're trying to get at peace without the one who is peace. And so he's saying it's always gonna be incomplete. It's always gonna be inadequate. There's always gonna be something more that we want, right? It's, it's not just gonna be you know, the benevolent paternalism of we're sorry, but we're not actually willing to make it right. We're gonna want more. But then on the other side, he says and wisely encourages us to live out of the unity we already possess. Because so many of us come to church and we go, okay, the preacher's gonna give me one more thing that I'm gonna have to do. But you guys, this is such good news because this is the preacher telling you you've already got it. Have you ever gone looking for your sunglasses only to realize they were on your head? Have you ever gone looking for your wallet and then it's there in my pocket? Well, let's just do that today. As we go looking for reconciliation, let's recognize the gift that we already have, the reconciler, the one who is peace. Friends, we don't have to go looking for unity. We already have it in Christ. And it's a unity in the midst of diversity that knits us together as the family of God. And guess what? God has a mission for the reconciled. It's not just to say, thank you, God, for reconciling me, and I'm gonna just embrace this only spiritual salvation and wait um, till you return. No, 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 no. He has a job for us to do, and he articulates this in 2 Corinthians 5 really well, where he says, all of this is from God. In 2 Corinthians verse 5, he says, all of this is from God, and he's talking about the gospel, and he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's amazing. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And the us there isn't just the pastor. It's not just apostles. It's not just leaders. He's actually talking to everyone. He's talking to the whole church. And so having the reconciliation that lays the groundwork for all other reconciliation, may we as the church live out the peace is given to us. May we live out the access that we have to the Father and may we live out our new identity in Him that we are saved by grace through faith. Jesus has rescued us and He's now calling us to participate in what He's doing. And it's really great that today we have a very practical way of doing this because one of the ways that we do all of that is actually we gather at the table. 
and we take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a meal that symbolizes and enacts the unity that we have as the body of Christ. So we'll take a few moments just to transition to the table, and then Pastor Tim will lead us through how we're going to partake this morning. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.